How Can We Become Less Addicted to Technology? Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, your regular host. Today, I'm handing over the mic to tech reporter Kashmir Hill, who's leading our special offstage series on technology. In this episode, she catches up with Tristan Harris. We continue our conversation about technology today on the Aspen Ideas to Go offstage podcast series. Hi, I'm your host, Kashmir Hill. Today, I sit down with Tristan Harris, founder of the Center for Humane Technology. He worked as Google's design ethicist and developed a framework for how technology should ethically steer the thoughts and actions of people from screens. He has briefed heads of state, technology company CEOs, and Congress. Welcome, Tristan. Thanks for having me. So you're a design ethicist at Google. What does that mean? Um, well, really, that was the only way to call what I was studying, which um, the, the story there was uh, I was a tech entrepreneur, and so I knew the game. I knew how, what it meant to start you know, a successful tech company. We were acquired by Google for our team, so we landed as a team at Google. And um, I became, over the years prior to getting acquired, um, more and more uncomfortable with the direction that tech was heading. That um, my friends in college started Instagram, and I had many friends who worked at Zynga, many friends who were starting like Path and these kinds of tech companies. And it just felt like less and less about what everybody was doing every day had anything to do with caring about making society better and more and more to do with how do we grow? How do we get engagement? How do we keep people hooked? How do we drive up you know, engagement time? And that was really unsettling. And I thought that Google sitting in the middle of this is the channel between 2 billion minds and a bunch of app developers and websites that want people's attention. They had a moral responsibility in uh, being really thoughtful about what that channel allows and doesn't allow. Um, and so I said, never before in history of 50 white guys at three tech companies influenced a billion people's thoughts. And this presentation spread virally throughout Google, and it led to basically uh, figuring out what that means. Can you talk about design recommendations that you made that they either accepted or did not accept? Um, you know, at the, t- at the very beginning, it was simple stuff, like asking, you know, people check their phones 150 times a day. Um, you know, uh, I almost, it's funny because it's almost too small to really talk about, but little things like reflecting back to people, like a, just like a speed limit sign that flashes at you when you're going by, uh, just showing people how many times or how often they're checking their phone or how many minutes it's been. Um, little ways of, of caring about um, or showing you your usage so that you can modify it to do something differently. Things like focus mode and chat so that you could basically say, hey, I want to be able to disconnect but not miss something important. So if I say I want to focus, right bef- it lets everybody else know when they send me a message uh, that I'm focused right now. And the default is it holds the message unless they explicitly say, hey, I actually want to plunge through that that extra speed bump and and actually uh, send them a message. So little ways, if you think of it like a city, it was kind of like cleaning up the streets in the city where we still have attention flowing through it, but we're a little bit more thoughtful about how it goes. So when you were making these recommendations about more um, ethical ways of designing these things, were they always uh, taking those recommendations and, and implementing them or was it, was it challenging to try to get them to make the kind of changes that you wanted? Um, it was challenging. Um, in fact, you know, for two years I tried to change, I mean, I didn't try this every single day. There's a lot of research involved, but ultimately there was an attempt to change Android and Chrome because those are neutral products that sit between you and then all the apps or you and all the web browsers, uh, all the websites, and they could be much more thoughtful about helping you navigate and put your interests first and, um, things like reducing notifications and again, the focus mode. And, uh, 
you know, we couldn't get those changes through. There was lots of product roadmaps that were already existing. People thought, is this really a problem? And I thought this was the biggest problem that no one was paying attention to. Um, And uh, it wasn't until we were able to go outside and create a big public conversation about how technology is hijacking our psychological weaknesses that this has gained traction. So would you consider it an, an ethical design that Netflix, you know, after you've watched four or five episodes of a show, they'll ask you, or are, you know, are you still watching? Are you sure you want to keep watching? Is that an ethical design move to try to stop people from binging? Um, so uh, the thing here is less about time and consumption, because that's one frame to have the conversation. We're losing all of our time or we're consuming things we don't mean to. And we should ask people, do you want to make a conscious choice about consumption? I think there's a deeper thing, which is that um, all of these apps are designed to maximize screen time, including Netflix, even though their business model is not advertising, they still maximize engagement, which is why they do the autoplay thing and say, we're going to autoplay the next episode. Um, But what's really the outcome of that is loneliness in society, because every time you open up any of those apps on your screen, you are basically activating supercomputers that know a lot more about your brain than you know about your brain to figure out what's the perfect next episode I can I can show you. What's the perfect temptation on Netflix I can show you. What's the perfect person I can show you on Tinder to make you reconsider the person you're with. What's the perfect next video on YouTube I can make you uh, watch uh, bef- so you don't want to fall asleep. And just like when computers play chess against humans, we lose because they see way more moves ahead on the chessboard, right? After it beat Gary Kasparov, Gary can only see so many moves ahead on the chessboard. When he plays chess against the computer, it could just see too many moves ahead. So he's toast. It's checkmate for all of humanity for all time once Gary lost chess. Whenever we use these products, we're activating supercomputers pointed at our brains. Our mind is a chessboard and it can see way more moves ahead. Now, the result of that isn't that we're harmed. It's not like we're dying or we get, you know, we, we don't get cut by these, you know, AIs or something. But we notice that it doesn't have our best interest in mind. It's only interested in entertaining us and keeping us hooked on screens, which means more and more time by ourselves which means when you wake up from that trance, you feel more and more lonely and isolated and alienated uh, because virtual interactions on screens with other people does not sufficiently replace in a lasting way. And a felt sen- your felt sense does not feel great after you just spend eight hours virtually interacting with people. Um, we really do need face, face-to-face contact. And I think that this is a much bigger conversation about how do we make sure that the fabric of society is protected. So you started the Center for Humane Technology. What are you doing to put pressure on technology companies to make changes? And you know, what are the big things you're advocating for right now? You can think of it almost like a Greenpeace, uh, not in the sense of that it's about protecting the environment, but in the sense of finding acupuncture points in a very complicated system of power. There's $500 billion of market value locked up in you know, the advertising-based business model of Facebook. And Um, thousands of employees who go to work every day selling ads to different people and thousands of engineers who go to work every day driving engagement metrics, things that maximize the time that people spend on site. So how on God's earth do you you possibly break through that system? And what we've found is that actually employees, changing the mindset of employees, because the thing about the tech industry that's, um, I don't know if it's unique, but people who go into it genuinely as engineers think that they want to make the world a a better place, that they think that they can use all this technology to um, build cool things that people will use and will make their lives better. And when you show them that the thing that they're actually doing is going to work to just keep people hooked or enabling foreign actors to manipulate elections because the advertising system 
can't make a distinction between a bad actor and a good actor. Um, or enabling you to go in and type in uh, warrior moms. I want to target all your warrior moms in your population, which is the thing that conspiracy theory mothers use for anti-vaccines. You can start spreading, you know, complete garbage into a population and create culture wars. So no one at these companies wanted that to happen. And when you show how the intrinsic structural nature of the product, like they're not abusing the product in some bad way. This is how the tools were designed to be used. So there's a problem structurally with how they're designed and we have to change that. And what we've noticed is that by changing how they think about it, um, we've made it basically impossible to do what we were doing yesterday because no one wants to go to work and fuel you know, the breakdown of democracy. No one wants to go to work and fuel teen suicides or depression from loneliness by seeing photos after photos of your friends having fun without you or unrealistic impressions of beauty uh, from other people. But I think what we need to do is, is really change how they think and that's been very successful. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some revolts by the uh, by tech company employees around, at this point, more government contracts. Like uh, at Google, there was Project Maven and not wanting to do, um, you know, this work for the government around making drone eyesight better. Um, yeah. We saw Microsoft with the ICE contract. So do you see that as a sea change that employees at these big tech companies are trying to push back uh, in terms of the direction of the companies? Yeah, I think there has been, you know, real... Um, you know, reckonings inside of some of the companies. I mean, the companies have every incentive to be in denial for as long as possible because there's just too much locked up in market value in doing what they were doing yesterday. So uh, I think they go through in and out of periods of how much they feel like they need to redesign the system. Um, I do know that, you know, Facebook people are, work, people are working exceptionally hard on trying to solve uh, the problems of election interference and uh, polarization uh, and excessive use. But what I wonder about is whether they're willing to see the, some of the structural problems that their business model fundamentally relies on this. So I think of this kind of like the environmental movement. We, the advertising-based business model, which requires every single one of these companies maximize how much time people spend on the screen, got us to this period of economic prosperity. It was like coal. It was this super cheap, efficient source of, in this case, like mining attention out of human beings to uh, create this enormous economic wealth. Great. Amazing. We're so happy we did that. Now we're waking up and we saw that we're causing these huge social harms and externalities from teen mental health and loneliness issues. Uh, as we talked about before this, you know, Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General of the U.S., has written these articles about how lonely, the loneliness epidemic might be a bigger epidemic and precursor for the opioid epidemic and that technology really amplifies these things. Um, you know, we really have a responsibility to, to change this. And I think that's, uh, that's starting to happen. So what can we as individuals do to keep, you know, our uh, attention from from being mined or our brains from being hijacked? Like, do you have a humane tech usage protocol for yourself? Um, I struggle with this like anybody else. And um, I think it's important, you know, you can give some recommendations about things you can do uh, and ways to think about what you can do. I think a lot of times people think about addiction and they think the answer is like restraint. Like I need to like find a way to use my phone less. Just use this, but use it less. Why do we turn to it in the first place? Why do we do that? It's because we're feeling anxious and empty on the inside for a moment. We feel uncertainty. We feel anxiety. Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Zen Buddhist uh, mindfulness spokesperson to Google back, and I was there in 2013, um, and sat him and his nine uh, Buddhist monks across the table from all these Google designers. And he came to Google because he saw technology as the most efficient and immediate vehicle for running away from ourselves. In that one moment when you feel this rise of 
I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm feeling uncertainty. The world is uncertain. You reach for your phone. And it's not like we're sitting there because we want to use it for some conscious, powerful tool to get us to do something. We're using it to run away from ourselves. So if you're trying to solve the addiction problem and have a better usage protocol, humane tech protocol, um, it's going to be less about using our phone less and more about finding what is fulfilling in our life. When you spend time with other people in ways that you love, you don't even think about checking your phone. It doesn't even occur to you. When you're having a deep, vulnerable conversation, you feel connected. When you're playing soccer or like you know team sports or you're doing knitting clubs or book clubs or things that feel good, whatever they are for people, that's the, that's the thing that we need. I think in the same way that Walmart like uprooted Main Street and like took away all these local stores. And so now that we don't even have you know, Main Street and local stores. I think that Facebook kind of uprooted some of the previous social infrastructure we had, the the reading clubs, the church groups, the these kinds of things. Um, so we don't have as many of those choices on the menu. When you don't look at your phone, you don't have this wide variety of easy options of things you can go to with your friends because everybody else is addicted to their phones too. So what we really need to do is re- repair the social fabric and give ourselves much more social choices of what we can do with each other because that's the real antidote. I mean, do you think social networks can still exist in that world? Like, can it be healthy to be on a social network, um, knowing that there are going to be these incentives to, uh, well, always check it, be addicted to it, present yourself in a certain way, uh, do that instead of going out and, and being social and in real life? Do you think that these platforms can all continue to exist and for uh, us to be healthier without I, our tech usage? I question whether they can exist in the way that they exist now. I think that we need radical redesigns, and that's why we have our center, uh, because we think there's a new humane technology environment we need to create that from the ground up is designed almost like a GPS. It's helping people make life choices and navigate towards life choices that that are about being with other people in the world, which means that you know if you look at what Facebook is in the position to do, they know when people are lonely. And they, could, they know who else is lonely at the same time that you're flicking your phone, you know, up and down on the screen. And they could make it, you know, so much easier for those people to do things with each other. Facebook might be the, um, you know, one of the best ways that we've ever had to help us make choices together because we know when people are available at the same times. Um, it's very hard for new companies to do that. If you go back to 2006, this is actually how Mark Zuckerberg talked about Facebook. He didn't talk about it as this like newsfeed content machine community thing. He talked about it as a social utility. And I remember because I was at Stanford when he gave that talk, and this is a year and a half into Facebook launching. Stanford was, I think, the third school that that Facebook was on. If you go back to that talk, I think it was in 2005, he said that what Facebook is is a social utility. When Steve Jobs talked about what the Macintosh was, it was supposed to be a bicycle for our mind, a tool that lets you go to new places. Um, That's not what Facebook is anymore. It's a consumption machine. And we can fix it, but we have to be able to say, how do we turn it back into a utility and a social utility? And I think it could enable us to make many choices that we don't we can't have, we can't really make right now um, or make it very easily at least. So if you could get Facebook to just make a radical design change overnight, what is the one thing that you would ask them to do to make Facebook more humane? Um, so these are hard design problems, just to be clear. These are not easy solutions, but um, you know, I was talking to some Facebook executives recently about this, that um, there's some really subtle reasons and ways that people shy away from creating events or um, uh, doing things with other people. Like, you know, when you're about to create an event, you feel that anxiety. Like, well, is anybody going to come? Like, no one's going to come. I shouldn't create this event. Um, making it so when you create an event, you have a co-host. 
um, co-hosts make it so you don't feel like all the burdens on you you both invite certain people there could be these like template flows that make it much easier to bring people together knowing these subtleties of social psychology where do people get insecure where do they feel like people won't show up how do you empower to you know people to get past those little social checkboxes in their mind of um, you know people really won't come and I think there's subtle ways to put people into chat rooms and uh, you know, express deeper commitments. So when there's a plan, they can more um, readily double down their commitments. Say, yeah, I'm going to be there. So that those kinds of subtle ways that we flake out on each other uh, are also handled. This is really a subtle art and it's very hard, but Facebook of all companies is in the best position to solve some of those problems. And they could pipe that into Instagram as well and make Instagram also about getting together with, with people. What is the activity on your phone that you feel is the most unhealthy that you would just like to change about yourself? Um, it's less about changing about myself. I, Twitter is both an incredible tool and also so depressing. Um, it feels as if the world is falling apart every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, that that it's true, uh, and that's not Twitter. That's just um, the truth. I also though think that it, you know, it's like if you seen 1984, the you know, or read 1984, there's like the five minutes of hate, right? Or is that thing that's called the five minutes of hate? Um, where everybody just like gets angry and shouts at the screen. It feels like Twitter is the five minutes of hate. You know, just everybody is outraged. And there's an infinite amount of hearsay, which is not true things, but things that propagate really quickly that you can get upset about. It's never been easier to be upset about something um, and to share it and to make other people feel a wave of outrage as well. And when you're in an outraged state, you show up, you know, the way you act next from an outraged place it's like if you ever, if you had children or something like that, when you're in an outraged place, is that the moment you want to have a conversation with your kids or with your partner? I think Twitter is putting us into these outrage, these perpetual outrage states that are having ripple effects and cascades downstream in society. And I think that um, that's something that has been hard for me, uh, even though I, I actually really like the efficiency of staying up to date on certain news. Yeah, I mean, I think you can recognize that something is unhealthy for you, but then have a hard time disconnecting from it. Um, I don't know if you have any advice for people who really recognize that uh, this is unhealthy behavior for them, but they can't disconnect um, because it's not an option professionally or personally. Well, this is important because it's very hard to disconnect from something when your work depends on it. Um, But it's also important to recognize that the fear of missing something important is a universal, uh, always true thing. Every single moment of your life, you are missing something important. Your friends are always having fun without you. Uh, there is always an email that you should have gotten back to a week ago. So the fact that those things are always true uh, might relieve some of the pressure because you realize that that's like an invariant fact of life. So if I'm getting stressed about it, it's simply that I'm pointing my attention at something that is always true. And um, this is a really hard thing to do, but I, you know, being here in Aspen, I do think that we, people spending more time in nature uh, can be really calming. And I struggle with this myself. I wish it was easier to book instant getaways, um, you know, efficient, I mean, um, economical instant getaways with friends, just because I think when you spend time in nature, you know, with a few friends, it's like the best thing in the world. Well, I think we should go outside and look at some mountains. (laughs) Let's do it. It's beautiful here in Aspen. Thanks so much for joining us for this. Thank you. Tristan Harris founded the Center for Humane Technology. Rolling Stone has named him one of the... 25 people shaping the world. I'm Kashmir Hill, an investigative reporter for Gizmodo. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. 25 people shaping the world. So There's only 25. <laughs> the rest don't matter. Just, just, just we 25. The most important of the 25 people shaping the world. <laughs>